Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Joyce Vance, a former federal prosecutor in the Northern District of Alabama and a professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. The sisters and I have so much to talk about this week. With me as usual are... I'm Jill Weinbanks, a former Watergate special prosecutor, and um, I've had a busy week, as I hope all of you have. I actually watched a performance of Molly Bloom's Soliloquy, which is an hour and a half of one person talking. That was quite a lot of fun. I'm Barb McQuaid. I'm a former federal prosecutor, and I'm currently a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, You know, this week we endured an awful lot of snow, and so I took to cross-country skiing, went out just about every day, got a little exercise, and got a little outdoors, so that was enjoyable. I'm Kimberly Atkins, a former civil litigator and now a columnist at the Boston Globe. And this was a busy week. One of the things that I did with my soon-to-be stepson and my fiancé was watch uh, All the President's Men, which made me think of Jill the whole time. (laughs) And also today, uh, I guest-hosted On Point's uh, show on NPR. I'll also be doing it again Monday and Tuesday, so check that out if you can. We'll call it in heckle. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We've all had busy weeks. We even had snow in Alabama, so that was something pretty special for us. This week, we'll take a look at ways Trump can be held accountable for his conduct, take a look at the importance that words have for the future of our country's non-citizens, and fill you in on what Judge Garland's impending confirmation as attorney general means for us. And as usual, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Today, we're going to start our conversation with a question of what's next. And we're going to look at Watergate and the current moment. As we look forward to what's next for the former president, I think it helps to look back to see what we've learned from history, particularly from Watergate. Back then, we didn't indict the president, but we named him a... Uh, unindicted co-conspirator. I wonder if we had, would Trump have behaved differently? And I wondered that even more as I was watching the vote in the current impeachment, the second impeachment of Donald Trump. When I heard McConnell, minutes after voting to acquit Trump, give what sounded like the House managers opening and closing combined, it was a powerful indictment of Trump, totally inconsistent with acquittal, And it gave a roadmap for prosecutors and civil litigators to do what he claimed falsely that Congress didn't have jurisdiction to do. To me, it was a reverse Watergate roadmap. We gave a roadmap to Congress, which was heavily relied on in pursuing articles of impeachment against President Nixon. But let's look at what McConnell said. um, And then I would like all of you to tell me what you think of uh, it and what will come as a result of what he said, plus the already filed NAACP case on behalf of Congressman Benny Thompson, a Democrat of Mississippi, under the Ku Klux Klan Act uh, against Trump, Giuliani, and the far-right groups Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. McConnell put out this excuse for voting to acquit because Trump was no longer president. And then he said, While former officials were not eligible for impeachment or conviction, they were, and this is extremely important, he emphasized, they were still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice. Put another way, he said, in the language of today, 
President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations has run, still liable for everything he did while in office. He didn't get away with anything yet, yet. So let's start by talking about some of the criminal cases that might face Donald Trump in the wake of the acquittal in the Senate. Barb, do you want to start? Yeah, well, first I want to comment on Mitch McConnell. Um, talk about, uh, you know, trying to have it both ways. He <laughs> votes to acquit, and then he says, but, of course, uh, President Trump could be responsible criminally or civilly. And uh, to me, what a cop-out. The standard for impeachment is, if anything, um, certainly no higher than guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard in a criminal case. Um, and he said that he was voting as he did because he believed it was unconstitutional to try a president after he has left office. But in that same case, of course, the majority of senators had decided that it was constitutional to proceed. And so under something known as the law of the case, that matter was resolved and their question was guilt or innocence. And so I thought he really punted on that, um, but then did a lot of finger wagging to talk about some of these other ways that President Trump could be held accountable by other people, just not by me. Um, so so there's that. Uh, but, uh, you know, we talked a little bit last week about this investigation that's going on in Georgia about a solicitation of election fraud. That is certainly a possibility. Now that's all going to depend on what the evidence shows uh, in terms of President Trump's intent? Did he intend to defraud an election? Or is it, you know, I don't know if you guys are Seinfeld fans, but you remember this episode where George Costanza was going to have to take a polygraph and he was afraid because he lies about everything he couldn't pass. But he realized that if you believe it's true, then it's not a lie. And so uh, does President Trump convince himself that he was just asking the Secretary of State of Georgia to uncover what was truthfully his win in the election and stopping the steal. So uh, so there's that. Certainly there's potentially federal criminal charges for his role, not only in uh, the election, but in what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. I think it's, again, important to look at the evidence. We didn't see witnesses in the impeachment trial, but the people who were with President Trump at the time that the insurrection was occurring and others who might have known his his statements could unearth some additional evidence there. So something that uh, that could be looked at. And then, of course, there's all the stuff, you know, besides uh, relating to the, the insurrection, there's all the stuff relating to obstruction of the Mueller investigation, financial fraud that is being investigated by the Manhattan District Attorney. Um, and so it, it remains to be seen, I think, in the coming months, whether President Trump will be held accountable for some of this misconduct criminally. There's an interesting development in the Manhattan DA's case, too, Barb. Did you see last night that Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, has brought on a former federal prosecutor, Mark Pomerant, who was the criminal chief in the Southern District of New York, the guy who prosecuted John Gotti? He is one of these people who really understands complex investigations. So in the last month, Vance has brought on a forensic accounting firm and a sort of legendary prosecutor. Now, look, I don't want to be Pollyannish here, but it doesn't seem to me that you do both of those things if you don't think that you've got a very serious investigation on your hands. So I think we need to keep our, our eyes on the Manhattan DA's office for the next few weeks. 
Yeah, that's the kind of thing that folks like us call circumstantial evidence. (laughs) Something is clearly (laughs) going on there in those investigations. Yeah, you know, um, I I really thought uh, a lot about the way Jill framed this, and and I was really grateful for her uh, op-ed in USA Today, um, which I read and which you can find in the links to our show notes, Um, in, in thinking about this, because after Mitch McConnell gave that speech, I have to say, I was furious. I mean, just as Barb hinted, you know, what a cop out. And if you can lay out a case that clearly, essentially for conviction, but turn around and say, oh, well, because the Constitution prevented you to when the Senate has now voted not once, but twice, um, that it is constitutional to convict someone after they've left office. So that is the law of the case. Um, that that was really, that was something else. I felt like I needed to grow stronger ocular muscles to give it the eye roll it deserves. <laughs> but if, if you want to take something from it, I think Jill is exactly right. Now it is really clear on, in many ways, on multiple records, including the transcript of what Mitch McConnell said, exactly what prosecutors can and should do and why? And and if they fail to do that, and if the convictions um, fail to come afterward, I hate to say that history will be a judge because history usually isn't a judge. <laughs> history is a terrible judge. What we need are the judges and the jurors um, in in the current time. And since it won't happen in Congress, it's really important that that happens in the courts in all of these cases that we've been talking about. And what about civil remedies? Jill, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it seems like maybe— Well, before we get to civil, I I wanted to just ask about—we mentioned that the Southern District of New York now has a prosecutor that's moved over to the Vance team. What about the Southern District of New York and any criminal cases that they might bring? Does anybody think they're likely to go ahead with any of the cases that are possible there? Hard to say. You know, they closed the case against individual one. Remember, there was the case where they had charged uh, Michael Cohen, who was convicted of a number of financial crimes. Um, And in the uh, I think it was in the information, the charging document to which he pled guilty. I think that was the document that referenced that he had committed his crimes in coordination with individual one. And it also identified individual one as the person who won the 2016 presidential election. So I think most of us can infer from that. Individual one is Donald Trump. And um, I I think you could correctly characterize individual one as an unindicted co-conspirator or an accomplice. Um, But it is DOJ convention not to name people if you're not going to charge them. And why was he was he not charged? One reason may be that he was a sitting president and it is the policy of the Department of Justice not to charge a sitting president. Um, But then later uh, they indicated to the court that the case had been closed and they were going to unseal some of the search warrants in the case. Um, and so the fact that it's already been closed seems to me perhaps to make it unlikely that it will open again. But I suppose with um, there's always additional evidence that could come into play uh, that could cause them to reopen that. I also don't know what uh, effect uh, William Barr had on the closure of that investigation and whether a different regime would see things differently. So I guess it's a possibility. It's a real mystery to see a case closed like that after the Justice Department has taken the step of identifying someone as an unnamed, unindicted co-conspirator. And so I I think, Barb, when you say we don't know what effect William Barr had on that, I I think we might be interested in knowing a little bit more about whether there was a political 
uh, spin on any of this as, as much as I, I just hate the notion that that would ever um, be a factor in a DOJ case. We've all lived through the last four years, and we know that there's uh, there have been a number of cases where that happened. Stone um, comes to mind pretty readily. Flynn. So I think that that does bear investigation. But Barb, I bet that you, like me, have um, on occasion told the agent, listen, we're going to close this case for now. It's not prosecutable. But if you get new evidence, you can always come back to us. Yep. So I'm not sure I would rule out the Southern District, even though the signs are that there's nothing imminent there. And I'm with Joyce. I think it's still a possibility. But um, before we run out of time, I do want to go on to some of the civil liabilities that face Donald Trump. There is one case that's already been filed uh, by the NAACP charging him with civil liability for interfering in the uh, government's operations. And there are several other possible cases. I would say, for example, there's possible personal injury and death uh, cases that could be brought against him for his role in inciting the uh, domestic terrorists to do the violence at the Capitol. Um, e. Jean Carroll will not have to face the Department of Justice as the defense for the president because right. I'm sure DOJ will not continue the absurdity of defending the president for having defamed E. Jean Carroll or having raped her. Um, which are the allegations. We don't know that they're true, but they're allegations. Summer Zervos's case is still pending. And then, most importantly, there is Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, who is doing a lot of civil investigation of the president, tax liability for sure. And I would say the federal government uh, still has that audit going. It hasn't been closed as far as I know. And he may owe a lot of money for having taken a refund of tax that he would now have to pay back not only the, ref the refund, but also all the uh, interest and penalties for having done that. Um, so he's facing a lot. Are there any other yeah. civil ones? I don't know that there are more civil ones, but I think it's important for our listeners to know that when we're talking about civil cases, first of all, the burden of proof is different. It's a preponderance of the evidence. It's not a beyond reasonable doubt like you have in criminal cases. Certainly criminal cases can play uh, a role uh, in these civil, ca uh, civil cases, for example, if he is convicted of incitement. Um, and that will certainly be brought into court if there are civil cases based on the people who are injured or suffered some sort of damage based on those incitement actions uh, if they are brought. And most importantly, I think now that he's out of office, there was the constant claim that while he was in office, a president cannot be uh, not face uh, even civil uh, suits while he's there. And so the fact that he's out means that there may, you know, we're, we're going to see probably a lot of these coming out in the days and weeks ahead. And, and as they do, we'll, um, we'll break them down here for everyone. But I you think know, I'm going to move. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say um, one last point about the um, the standard of proof. You mentioned that it's um, not guilt beyond a reasonable doubt by preponderance of the evidence, and that can make a huge difference. It may sound like a legal technicality to people, but you know, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest standard we have. Um, guilt beyond all reasonable doubt, and you have to get twelve people to decide that unanimously. That can be very difficult to do. But preponderance of the evidence is really just 
you know, 51%, more probable than not. Um, and a classic example of that is the O.J. Simpson case. He was yes. found not guilty when the standard of proof was beyond a reasonable doubt. But with essentially the same evidence, a jury was able to find him guilty by preponderance of the evidence. And so um, I think that really could matter in a case where, you know, things like intent and other things um, can be really nuanced. And so that that could be the difference. So uh, I'm going to keep an eye on that uh, that lawsuit um, that was brought under the Ku Klux Klan Act. I think it's a really interesting lawsuit. Uh, and I know, Joyce, you may know this, the Southern Poverty Law Center has brought a lot of these kinds of cases against white supremacy groups, KKK and others, with great success. So they have. The Southern Poverty Law Center actually put the Ku Klux Klan out of business. They bankrupted them right. with one of these uh, lawsuits. Uh, it was a, a very clever strategy that they used, almost like an Al Capone tax prosecution, right? You don't necessarily have to go for the most serious charges if you can put bad guys out of business. It's a very interesting case, the NAACP case here. It uses, as Barb points out, this older Ku Klux Klan Act statute. And essentially, it says, listen, these, these folks got together, the president and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and others, and they colluded in an effort to keep us, in, in this case, Benny Thompson, a Mississippi congressman, from executing our constitutional duties. And so this really goes to this notion of the different burdens of proof, because that case is proving collusion between the defendants, essentially that there was a conspiracy to prevent Congress from fulfilling its acts. And that might be easier to prove if you just have to say it's more likely than not that they conspired together than prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But if I was a betting person, I would say that we'll see this um, NAACP case undergo a little bit of revision. I think for one thing, there will be the addition of some more plaintiffs along with Cong the Mississippi congressman. And also it's possible that we may, may see some uh, theories that, that more clearly mirror strategies used by the Southern Poverty Law Center that avoided the need to prove a conspiracy and talked about action by the actors. So like Barb, my eyes are on that lawsuit. And I love that you use the word collusion because that reminds me of impeachment number one, which was a question of whether there was collusion with Russia. So that was a good thing. I also want to just, before we move on to topic number two, is that if there is a finding of incitement, which I think there will be in some of these civil cases, that could be a trigger for the 14th Amendment and a prohibition of Donald Trump running ever again. So we should keep that in mind as we move forward. But Kim, yeah, we why don't you take it away here? Yes, we should definitely watch that 14th Amendment case, which would require congressional uh, action because that's a constitutional remedy there. But yes, moving on to the next topic, um, it's about how words matter. And uh, this week, the Biden administration uh, made a directive to um, the uh, to several agencies uh, to change the way that language is used in the Department of Homeland Security and other relevant agencies. Uh, there was a directive issued that the term alien or illegal alien uh, should not be used in internal uh, communications or in some external uh, messaging, including press releases uh, and other things. Uh, and instead, less 
uh, language that they said would be less dehumanizing would be used. Words like non-citizen. And to me, that struck me as something very interesting. Also, uh, in uh, President Biden's immigration plan, it calls for changing language in relevant, relevant statutes like the Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1965, which still uses words like alien, uh, so that that does not happen in legal pleadings and other legal papers, which has been the justification for folks, including uh, in the Trump administration, for why that word has been used. Uh, And it harkens back to 2018, when then Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a directive within the Department of Justice, which required the use of alien and illegal alien in federal pleadings instead of other language like undocumented immigrants, He said, because that's the language that appeared in the statute. Of course, uh, Sessions was someone who used that kind of language on the campaign stump and elsewhere uh, with gusto. Uh, I wrote about that a little bit in my column in the Boston Globe that came out today. Um, But to me, this is an important move by the Biden administration. It alone won't eliminate the use of the word alien from the federal government, but it's moving in the right direction. It took until five years ago for words like Negro and Oriental to be eradicated from federal statutes. But finally, Congress acted to do that. And that doesn't mean that up until four or five years ago, people were using that word actively the way they had been using the word alien in the Trump administration. But words indeed matter, especially for people of color like me who have been on the receiving end of words that are meant to dehumanize. That should not be the policy of the federal government, even if you want to be uh, very strong and, and very forceful in, invo- in enforcing your immigration laws. There's no reason to dehumanize individuals. The word illegal, the term illegal alien has always been particularly um, awful to me because it's not even grammatically incorrect. A human being cannot be illegal and they should not be called as such. So I, I want to hear from my sisters about what they think about this new move by the Biden administration. What Kim, about you, I'm really Barbara? glad you wrote I'm really glad you wrote about this and you can find Kim's column in our show notes. Um, it's a terrific piece and tells a, uh, a heartbreaking story, a personal story that uh, I think is, is worth reading. Um, when I was uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I remember a time when uh, we made a decision that in our press releases, we were going to stop using the word alien and we were going to start using the word undocumented immigrant uh, because there are cases involving people who are undocumented immigrants. And that is sometimes the essence of the charge. Um but for this exact reason that you're talking about, you know, I think uh, people who are lawyers and um, journalists, who uh, we are all among us, uh, care a lot about words and the connotation that words bring with it and the message you're sending with words. And so um, our press releases started changing and many other offices around the country were doing the same thing. And so when that article came out two years ago, that order from Attorney General Sessions to change undocumented immigrant or non-citizen back to alien, it really struck me, uh, you know, telling us what to do and telling us not to do that, what good reason can there be other than a political reason to try to suggest that the people involved are somehow other and foreign and different and to demonize them? In the other part of that um, uh, memo, Kim, you may have seen, um, I think you, you cited to it in your article, It said you should also do the following. If, for example, you have a defendant who is originally from Nicaragua but is currently living in Toledo, you should not say Toledo man 
charged with carjacking. You should say Nicaraguan national charged with carjacking. And again, what is the purpose of that other than to advance this narrative that immigrants are criminals? Um, and so I, I really took offense to that language. And I think the word alien in particular is one that is demonizing and an effort to promote otherness. You know, if you if you are an iPhone user, Jill, I know you're the lone Android user among our group, but if you're an iPhone user, go into your text messages, like right now, if you're wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, get out your phone, type into a text message the word alien, and you know how little emojis come up? Type in alien and look at the picture that comes up. It's a little space alien, right? Because that yeah. is what we think of when we hear the word alien. And so, you know, when the word was first put into these statutes in the 1700s, 1800s, whatever it was, it predated the space program. Perhaps we weren't thinking about these things. And maybe at that time it was a less loaded term. But language evolves and we need to evolve with it. Um, and so I think that this is an important change. I applaud the Biden administration. And, you know, for those, I, I did some training this week on diversity and inclusion. And I know how it can feel sometimes that, gosh, I can barely keep up with the way language changes. You know, I used to use this this phrase and now I have to use that phrase. Yes, language evolves and it's on all of us to keep up. And so we have to educate ourselves and make sure that we're using language that's inclusive and respectful. In terms of the evolving language that you're talking about, Barb, um, I had started on Twitter a hashtag, say this, not that, because there are so many phrases that I find both inaccurate and offensive. And because words matter so much about how we actually interpret what's happening, so if you call a group militia, um, that's one thing. If you call them domestic terrorists, you see it differently. And I think we have to be careful that we do say this, not that. Obviously, we should all be careful not to use the word alien for exactly the reason you're pointing out. And we should really keep a list as we go forward of things that are no longer acceptable to say. And pay attention to that. It will change how politics responds if we're using the right words or how people vote if we're using the right words. You know, over the last four years, I know we've all had people reach out to us and ask what, you know, what can I do? I'm just an average citizen. What can I do to make a change, to have an impact on civil society? I think Jill's absolutely right. This is something that we can all do. We can be mindful of the language that we use. You know, I was especially... Um, sensitized, frankly, to what our former attorney general, my former senator, did in the area of referring to people as illegal. And in 2011, I challenged Alabama's brand new immigration law. We challenged it successfully. It was unconstitutional. But something that has stayed with me is that one of the worst features of that law, in my judgment, was that it prevented children from going to school by the very neat device of forcing the schools to collect information on their parents' immigration status. So if you were in a mixed status family or if you had a parent who wasn't documented, whether the child was an American citizen or not, many of them were American citizens, they did not go to school that year. And shortly after we sued the state of Alabama, I was obviously still at the Justice Department, then Senator Sessions gave a radio interview and he used the word illegal to describe these children over and over. And I thought, how horrible 
must it be to be a child? And this is the senator on the radio, but you know they're hearing it replicated over and over in their communities. And, and other kids are growing up in homes where people are being referred to as illegal and, and really dehumanized. So this is, I think, something concrete that we can all do to fight back and, and reclaim the kind of society that we want to live in. Be very careful about any language that dehumanizes other people. And it's not always easy, right? I mean, I've worked for certainly not my current uh, employer at all, uh, but I've worked at news organizations where I had to push back against my own editors who wanted to put in the phrase illegal immigrant in a story. And I said that that is, again, it's grammatically incorrect and it's also cruel. And I think for a lot of people who use that term, the cruelty is a po- is the point. And I think the former attorney general would fall uh, into that. And I had to push back against my own editors. This particular publication even would use um, the even worst approach, which is saying illegals like a noun um, <laughs> in some of the, the columnists and op-eds, which was just really terrible. So it's not always easy to push back against this thing. But I think for one of the easiest ways to go about it, at least for me, and as a journalist, I think you're describing what's happening. So if you are talking about uh, a violation of immigration law, then what happened? That means that a person either came into the country um, in a way that wasn't following the rules, or they came into the country on a visa and they overstayed the visa. Uh, And they are still here. If you explain exactly what happened, you can explain it as if this is a human being while still explaining exactly what happened, why they have run afoul of the law. And it's actually more information, better information for people. Because, again, I think when you just label people illegal as their very being, as their very um, sense, it's meant to categorize them uh, in a certain way. So I, I, I love Jill's approach. Say this, not that. If you just say the facts then you can usually avoid dehumanizing. There's one other target audience that needs to have this brought to their attention, and that is the people who work for the immigration (coughs) service. Um, When I first started practicing in Chicago, one area of practice I developed was immigration. And I did some pro bono work in addition to representing corporate people who were bringing in senior level executives. And I took one client over to the immigration service and waited in line like everybody else. And I watched how the people behind the counter were treating each immigrant who was there for whatever reason. They were mean. They were nasty. They were rude, dismissive. And my turn came up and they don't even really look up. And so they started yelling at me and then looked up and realized that I was a well-dressed white woman. And they went, changed their entire attitude. And I think that if it was brought to their attention of how mean and cruel and dehumanizing their language and behavior is, that they would treat people better. So I think we need to make everyone aware of this. And I'm so glad your 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 article today was very powerful and very emotionally moving. So I hope everyone will read that. Well, thank you for that, Jill. And I think just what we're seeing happening um, after some terminology that was used to describe the pandemic, what's happening to um, uh, people of Asian descent and Asian Americans in this country right now with the attacks that are happening on them show that words really matter a lot. Why don't we move on from there? One of the things I know we all wanted to talk about while there's still time is the upcoming confirmation hearing for Judge Merrick Garland 
to be the Attorney General of the United States. Joyce, do you have any thoughts about what uh, you expect that Judge Garland will be asked when he faces the Judiciary Committee next week? So I suspect that he'll be grilled. We've come to look forward to these rituals where, much as in Supreme Court confirmation hearings, senators from the opposition party will try to get the nominee to commit to positions or prosecutions, and that nominee will uh, uh, sort of bob and weave as best he or she can to avoid giving any concrete answers. Something I, I think we'll hear from Judge Garland, though, will be a strong affirmation of the independence of the Justice Department. I, I would say a reaffirmation, a return to the position that the Justice Department should hold in the executive branch, you know, which is a little bit different from other agencies, because as, as we've all discussed among ourselves, DOJ, at least when it's prosecuting criminal cases or even when it's engaging in some of the civil enforcement actions that it does, can't engage in any sort of political decision-making. It just has to make decisions based on the facts and the law. So I'd look for Judge Garland to take a strong stand in that direction. But I think after all the shouting's over, he'll be confirmed along bipartisan lines. I would be surprised if this was a straight party line vote. Yeah, I mean, he should be confirmed along uh, bipartisan lines, if for no other reason. And if you recall, the first time he uh, was waiting for a confirmation hearing that never came when he was <laughs> uh, nominated to be a Supreme Court justice, the line of every Republican who refused uh, to even grant him a hearing was, hey, this has nothing to do with qualifications. You know, we don't have a problem with this qualifications so I think it's almost a matter of, uh, you know, judicial notice, uh, to use another legal term, that he's, he, he has no problems with his qualifications. I think if Republicans now start trying to pick at that, uh, both the fact that they said that before and that he has been confirmed as a federal judge uh, would make that would make that very difficult. But I do think that the point that Joyce makes is really important about a Justice Department that should be removed from politics. I think in that vein, we may see um, not an actual appearance, but you, you'll be able to feel the presence of former Attorney General Barr just because it will serve as such a dichotomy from what we just had uh, and the picture of the DOJ and um, and and being the top lawyer for the federal government uh, that Judge Garland will likely paint will be one that is unrecognizable if you'd only seen the Justice Department over the past two years. I think you're all completely correct and that uh, Judge Garland is exactly what the Department of Justice needs. He is not a political person. He is someone who is known for his integrity and someone who can and will restore that to the Department of Justice, which is probably the agency most damaged by the Trump administration. I think what happened there was horrible. Um, it's, you know, I guess if we can go back to the Watergate era, the attorney general, of course, was indicted and convicted. Um, and so were subsequent members of the high level at the Department of Justice. He wasn't the only one. So it needed that kind of repair and a non-political uh, person from the University of Chicago, uh, and of course, Merrick Gowan is also from Chicago, um, was brought in to restore that kind of integrity and respect and to free it from its political 
uh, use as it had happened during Nixon and happened during Trump. So um, I, I'm going to predict that it will be an, a, a supermajority vote, that it's not going to be close. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of questions about that. You know, if I were asking questions, I'd want to know what steps do you plan to make to restore public trust uh, regardless of your political background? You know, I don't want to hear that it's it's now it's the Democrats' turn uh, to take on politically charged cases. I think what we want to hear is cases that will be free from partisan politics or the appearance of it. And what are you going to do uh, to remedy that, Judge Garland? I think that is what I would be looking to hear. And um, he gave a very good speech about that when he was first nominated, when he was introduced by uh, President Biden. Uh, he gave a speech a- along those lines. And so I'm hopeful that we'll hear more about that. I think that is, uh, you know, for all of us who've worked in the Justice Department, uh, we know that it is a non-political place. And I think one of the great harms of the past four years is this perception that it is. So much of our world has become uh, partisan that I think people don't understand that uh, U.S. attorney's offices and the Department of Justice just aren't. Um, and so I, I hope a restoration not only to the reality of that situation, but the public perception of it. Yeah, if you I know, prosecutors are, are used to sitting back from their communities a little bit. Uh, in large part, much of the criminal part of what our offices do in, involves investigations that can't be discussed publicly until they result in an indictment. And even at the time case indicted, prosecutors are restricted to discussing the four corners of the indictment itself. They can't discuss the facts more generally. So there's often been, I think in some ways, really a wall between U.S. attorneys' offices, the Justice Department, and communities. My sense is that this Justice Department will have to take on the additional burden of going out to communities very deliberately to explain, not not to talk about individual cases, but to talk about process and to really rebuild faith with communities that they serve, that's going to be essential and it's going to be a little bit unfamiliar territory for Justice Department folks. Yeah, that's right in line um, with what I was thinking, Joyce. I mean, I think if if I have uh, substantive things that I'm looking for in this hearing with Judge Garland, it would be after seeing this insurrection with uh, really very violent people storming the Capitol after a year where people were crying out for racial justice um, in in uh, the criminal justice and civil justice system. And when uh, the immediate predecessor, Attorney General Barr, said that he did not think that there was systemic racism in policing, I would be looking for a really strong commitment from Judge Garland to prioritize that. I think we've already seen that from the Biden administration, from some of the nominations that he's made uh, in the Civil Rights Division and elsewhere throughout the department. But I really want to hear that from the person who is going to be at the helm of the Justice Department, really saying that he recognizes and understand he recognizes and understands it. Um, he did speak about that too after he was nominated. But I would like to see more because that is such a crucial, crucial issue that the Justice Department really needs to prioritize, not just um, bringing back uh, justice and equality in policing and in the justice system but also really noting the the violent uh, threat that some right-wing domestic uh, groups face Americans. I think that's right, Kim. And, and that, look, there's, um, it may hit a little bit close to home. We've already seen the Secretary of Defense call for a month-long stand-down so that 
folks in, in the military can talk with troops very deliberately in a very forthright manner about the problem of infiltration of the military with domestic terrorist groups. Law enforcement has issues. As a sitting U.S. attorney, I dealt publicly with one uh, police department in Anniston, Alabama, that learned that some of its members, uh, some of its officers were members of a right-wing group called League of the South that had a very similar ideology to some of these groups that we saw involved in January 6th. And now with this newest indictment of members of the Oath Breakers um, involved in a conspiracy for January 6th, I think this attorney general may have to look inside in a very painful conversation um, to assess whether he, like the military, has to do some reworking of his personnel. I want to divert from our conversation just because you mentioned the military. And this week, two women were nominated for four-star positions, nominations that were withheld because Trump might have and probably would have not made it happen. Um, When I was general counsel of the Army, one of the things I'm proudest of was that I worked on legislation to abolish the Women's Army Corps so that women would be part of the regular army and therefore eligible for these positions. And at the time, WACS had two two two-star positions. That was it. And now there are many, many three and and now there will be two four-star females in the military. And I'm just I'm so excited about that that when you mentioned the military, I had to just add that. Sorry. Oh, that is great. That is really exciting. It's exciting, but maybe it's a conversation for another day why they were delayed. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, now it's time for us to turn to your questions. Each week we answer your questions and you can send them to us using the email address sistersinlaw at politicon.com or via Twitter using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions in the show, we'll try to answer as many as we can on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. So first, y'all, we have a question from Lynn in Dallas, Texas. And Lynn's question is about impeachment proceedings against that former guy. She asks, the Democratic Party did not call any witnesses. Why? Well, I'm I can start with that. Oh, oh sorry. No, uh, go, you go ahead, because I well, bet we're all going to say exactly the same thing. That's what my bet is. Well, I'm going to start with the political reality of it. I think it gets back to the broader point that we've made in past podcasts that you don't um, call a witness or ask a question as a lawyer that you don't know the answer to. I think there was an effort by the House managers um, to try to call witnesses without really knowing what the Democrats in the Senate were going to do or what some of the Republicans in the Senate were going to do, frankly. And then when the Senate voted to, to call witnesses on a bipartisan vote, and then the negotiations began, they realized that politically they were going to run into a big problem if Republicans pushed back and turned it into something that would look like a circus. So why I, that's the political reason why they decided to pull back. And I totally get the political reason. I think that undermines the legal reason, which is we had evidence that was coming out during the course of this trial that gave credence to the fact that the president of the United States, while this insurrection was going on, didn't do anything 
to try to stop it even once he realized that the vice president would be in danger. And we had members of his own party uh, that were saying that. Some of that information made it into the record. To me, I think that's a little insufficient because that is a major piece of evidence that the American people really deserve to hear firsthand from people, regardless of the vote at the end, regardless of the outcome. That was a major piece of information that needed to be a part of that trial. But because the political reality bumped up against it, um, that information didn't come in. Yeah, so I agree. I would like to, to have seen... Go ahead, Barb. I, I would like to have seen witnesses. I think the same thing, Kim. I think they're calculating, we need to get this trial over with because we want to get to COVID relief. We want to get to confirmation hearings. And if we go down this road of witnesses, then the Republicans are going to call witnesses. And, you know, I, I'm sure much of it was a bluff, but some Republicans putting together, you know, here's my list of 300 witnesses, including Kamala Harris and other people who clearly, you know, had no pertinent information about the situation. But I think that if they were acting honorably and discharging their duty to the American people, they would have recognized that there was a handful of witnesses who had pertinent information who should have been called to testify, like Mark Meadows, people who were present with President Trump during the time that the insurrection had begun. Um, we had um, some testimony that there was an overheard conversation uh, with Kevin McCarthy about what President Trump said. Let's let's hear from Kevin McCarthy. And there was fear that you know they wouldn't be friendly witnesses to the Democrats. They might say something that was harmful. I think you you take you know you let the chips fall where they may. This isn't about one side winning or losing. It's about setting a record for history, putting people under oath and asking them what they have to say. And so I think it was a missed opportunity to get a historical record so that we would know what happened there. Um, and I think, as you say, it is politics uh, taking precedence over the quest for the truth. So I would add that, of course, this was a political trial, not a criminal or legal trial in a courtroom. Uh, and the rules are very different. And while I agree that I would have loved to have seen more than a handful of witnesses if I, you know, was being honest in terms of further investigation and further elucidation of the facts for the historical record, there is, as a trial lawyer, one side of me that says, if they had done that, it would have delayed the trial for at least, uh, let's say, a week. And a lot of the power and emotion that had come through in what had already gone forward from the uh, prosecution side, from the House managers, would have been forgotten and lost. And I think there is, even though, as you all know, I'm the Pollyanna in this group, I'm always optimistic that people will do the right thing. Um, even I have to admit, in this case, there was no chance that the vote was ever going to be to convict, that it was just beyond hope. And so when you then put it all together with the reality that it's a political trial and that COVID relief was essential, that confirmation of all of the cabinet is essential, and that there, there would be no change in the outcome, then, especially if you're going to go ahead with a 9-11 style commission where all of this public testimony can be heard, where the historical record can be made. I don't think there was that much of a loss. I think the House managers did a brilliant job and that calling witnesses 
would not have changed the outcome. You know, Jill, it's interesting that you raise the notion of a commission. Nancy uh, Pelosi called uh, for having a January 6th commission this week. And that led me to go back and reread the 9-11 commission report. And I had forgotten how factual it was. It really reads like a novel of what happened. And they had subpoena power. They didn't exercise it with a heavy hand, but they were able to get a lot of witness testimony. You know, we all recognize that we live in a different era in terms of witness compliance. There still seems to be either significant allegiance or or fear to the former president. But I think a January 6th commission may get us some of the historical record that we all um, agree we missed out on by not having witnesses. So at least there's that. Just Mm -hmm. one last point. I hope people read it. I hope people read that report. I was, um, it's different than an impeachment trial. Um, I was really dismayed at how few people read the Mueller report um, because I thought that that was an important document too. So I hope when this uh, 9-11 report comes out that people do pay attention to it. Even more shocking is how few people watched the trial because I would have said it was really important to get the witnesses in the trial because people were watching and they will never watch the commission hearings. Um, they did watch the Senate Select Committee uh, during Watergate and paid attention to that. If there's some way to get the people to pay attention, that might be really important because no one's going to read it. They need to watch it live. And I'm sorry that they didn't watch the trial live. And that to me means they certainly aren't going to watch the commission live. Even so, I, I mean, perhaps things can be done to encourage people to watch it. But even so, there were some recommendations from that 9-11 Commission report that have seen its way into law. And so uh, when you have a bipartisan group that is gathering information and making recommendations, then gov- good government says that they will incorporate some of those. And we have many of them from the 9-11 Commission report. So I am hopeful that such a commission would have some real value. Our next question goes a totally different direction. It's from Maureen, and she writes, There was a well-known judge who made it a rule that women couldn't wear open-toed shoes in court. The reasoning behind this was that it reminded the judge of cleavage. What do you think, Maureen asks, of systemic sexism in women's fashion attire? Who wants to go first? I can't wait to take on this question. Because when I started practicing law, I had to wear a skirt. I was forbidden to wear pants in a court. My first trial was in Alaska in January. The jurors were all wearing flannel-lined pants and mucklucks, and I was wearing a skirt. So I've long been offended by the rules of dress for women in a courtroom. Uh, I hadn't heard of the one until Maureen asked this good question about open-toed shoes, but it is part of the demeaning of women in a courtroom. It is part of the sexism that we have all had to endure, and I think we have to stop it. I mean, now you go into a courtroom, the judge and maybe both lawyers uh, on either side of the case are women now, Um, but the rules are still not fair. So this was shocking to me. I think it's a terrible thing, and it is systemic sexism. 
Yeah, Jill, you have me beat because when I started out as an attorney as well, I I remember one of the first things that um, the other woman in my law office told me was which judges I was I would have to wear a skirt suit Mm -hmm. in front of because Mm -hmm. if I didn't, I would be called on the carpet in open court because they required that. And I was in Boston, so it's not quite Alaska, but it was still <laughs> cold. Um, and and those were the only days that I did not wear a pantsuit or a pants and, and a jacket or, or some something else. But it was really astonishing to me that none of the other, none of the male attorneys that I saw at Suffolk Superior Court in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, probably gave a second thought about what they were wearing, but I had to be so mindful of it. Another thing that this reminds me of is when I first began covering the U.S. Supreme Court as a reporter, and one person told me uh, that when you go to the U.S. Supreme Court, you'd better be wearing pantyhose. Well, this is Washington, D.C. in October when it is still in the 80s and 90s. And I said, you know what? If they want to kick me out of this court, they can. And they never did. Although I was told that during the Rehnquist court, uh, that when people infringed or sometimes when women would wear a scarf that he thought was too busy, he would actually order a marshal to to ask them to take it off. Um, so it, it the sexism has extended throughout the the legal system in many ways. I'm sure all four of us have experienced it right down to the way that we dress. Maybe we can well, put and on you our know, website. You, you think Yeah. You think that these things don't have lingering effects, but they really do. As a young lawyer, I was haunted by a story. Um, I started out in private practice in Washington, D.C. There was at the time a a junior woman. I think she was either a senior associate or maybe she had just made partner. And she had been involved in a trial in the Eastern District of Virginia. And she tried the case with one of our senior partners. And in the Eastern District, you get to talk to the jury pretty soon after they return their verdict to to get their views on how the trial went. And so they talked to the male partner and they talked about strategy and evidence and what they thought. And when they got to the woman, they said, we really wondered why you wore the purple blouse on the second day of trial. You know, we (laughs) talked about that a lot. And she um, she was upset, but she laughed it off. I mean, by the time she told me the story, she told it as a joke. But y'all, it stayed with me. And for years, even after I became a federal prosecutor, I wore a black or a navy blue suit with a white or a blue blouse when I went to court and a lot of time just in the office because I didn't want the way I looked to in any way do a disservice to my client. I mean, I understood the unfairness and it was really annoying. But at the same time, I didn't want to do anything that could damage my client. And then one day I just thought, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, Um, I will say in response to that, I do think that there is a certain decorum in the courtroom, right? That men and women need to abide. Like, I'm not going to wear shorts to the courtroom. I'm not going to wear a tank top. Well, maybe just once. (laughs) Um, there is a solemnity to it. A person's liberty yeah. is at stake. I want to show appropriate respect for that. Uh, and so I do dress conservatively. Um, and like Kim uh, and, and Jill has, have mentioned, when I first started practicing, it wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't wear anything besides a skirt with a, in a suit. Um, but what changed it for me was seeing our governor, Jennifer Granholm, most powerful woman in the state, wear pants all the time. She wore pants to her state of the state address, and it was really eye-opening to me. I took notice, and I thought, wow, she looks great. She looks impressive. She looks professional. She looks like she is respecting the decorum. 
And if the governor of the state can wear pants, then so can I. And after that, I began wearing pantsuits all the time. And I felt so much more comfortable and so much more powerful. Um, and I, I have not gone back. But I think it speaks to the importance of women in leadership positions. You know, when we are at the lower end of the org- organizational chart, we don't want to make waves and we don't want to do anything that might upset the balance in the courtroom for our client because we want to think about their interests first. But when you have a woman who is the judge or who is the U.S. attorney or who is the governor of your state, they can um, give license to the rest of us about what we're allowed to do. And so I, to this day, thank Governor Granholm for liberating all women in Michigan to be able to wear pants. I love that story, Barb. That's absolutely wonderful. And it speaks to the power that we all have, right, to help women who are coming up behind us. Um, I think we have time for one more question. So here's one from June in Jerusalem, Israel. And she asks, why aren't the rioters being charged with insurrection? And how does this fact square with Trump's being impeached for inciting insurrection and not other crimes? I can take a quick stab at that. Um, Just because they haven't doesn't mean they won't, number one. Um, I think that most prosecutors would first charge what is sometimes referred to as the low-hanging fruit. That is uh, the lowest charge where you can uh, get somebody in court and get them out of harm's way. And in fact, uh, acting U.S. attorney in D.C., Michael Sherwin, has said exactly that, that he has instructed his prosecutors to continue to investigate seditious conspiracy and see if they have evidence of that. To date, no one has been charged with that. And I know um, the question was about insurrection. I think the charge that would likely be charged would be seditious conspiracy. We have seen some conspiracy charges, and it's an interesting charge um, that I really like. I think it it has... um, some real attractive attributes to it. They've been charging some of these men in the Oath Keepers and other organizations with um, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And that might be a little cleaner. It might be a little easier to prove. If you can simply show that people agreed to obstruct the proceeding where they were going to count the votes, that's enough. And you don't have to show that they were trying to oppose by force the authority of the United States or levy war. Um, And it could be a lot easier. But nonetheless, I imagine that the investigations are continuing. And if through social media and text messages and emails and other things, they can put together that evidence, then we could see those charges yet. Yeah, and I think that's you... exactly... Go ahead, Kim. No, I was saying, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that's one way that um, members of the public don't always understand that when you have particularly criminal charges, um, prosecutors are very careful. They want to make sure that they can make their case before they charge it. They don't want to get out ahead of it. So if there are uh, less serious crimes that can be charged more quickly, they will do that in order to get a person arrested, in order to get that process started. Um, But it may seem like to folks in the public that they're being soft on them. And that's not the case at all. It's really the exact opposite from civil litigation, which I did. And I think it's important as we watch some of these civil cases that we talked about at the top of the show play out. A lot of times we would we would uh, put everything in the complaint, everything that could possibly fall from the set of facts that we put out, knowing that at some point in time, some of those uh, complaint charges would be dismissed but you would still have the the brunt, the, 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 the nut of your complaint to move forward on, even if it's not every single charge. So I think that's something that you'll look to happen. So when that starts happening too, and things start being dismissed, you shouldn't get worried as long as there are some um, counts that remain in those civil suits. But it's really the opposite approach, depending on what kind of action it is. 
And something else that happens in criminal cases that doesn't happen in civil is prosecutors are looking for cooperators, people who have the choice of being a defendant or a witness or who might plead to lesser charges in exchange for cooperating in helping the government make these cases. And I'll sort of go full circle here to where we started talking about the difficulty of state of mind and proving what was going on in the president's head during the insurrection, you know, to the extent that any of these people may have knowledge about communications between people involved in the insurrection and people in the White House or the president's inner circle, that's what prosecutors are really looking for, either the existence of that communication or the absence of that sort of communication will be very telling in where this is ultimately headed. And I think you probably have all seen that the proud boy who was named so frequently in the uh, trial of Donald Trump number two has now come forward and is probably going to plead guilty and cooperate. And he's also said that one of the heads of the Proud Boys has already been cooperating, that he may have been cooperating all along. So that just strengthens what you're saying and shows why they're starting at the prosecution level where they are. And I think, as Barb said to begin with, don't count it out yet. Well, all of this conversation is obviously to be continued, and we'll be back next Friday to do exactly that to continue it. But that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, Kim Atkins, and me, Joyce Vance. Don't forget to send us your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com, or you can tweet your questions to us for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. You'll also find those links in our show notes. To keep with, up with us every week, subscribe to hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to hear what you think. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. emails you a screenshot I took of us. Are you willing to let me tweet that? Can I sure. tweet it? Oh, sure. I look terrible. <laughs> I know, so do I. But what do you think? I look bad. But you it's look good, okay. Joyce. As always. But I'm what do you sure think? Can I tweet it? I just emailed sure. it to you all.